and you can be seated. Man, keep that Bible close to you this morning as we're going to flip through some sections in Matthew um, this morning that I want to point out to you. So we're going to do some work this morning. So if you have your own Bibles and you scribble in your, your Bible and that sort of thing, then, then please uh, feel free to do that. I hope to bring out some connections this morning um, that naturally we wouldn't necessarily want to just kind of grab a hold of. So this morning we continue this sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew called King and Kingdom. We've been watching Jesus kind of do, to relate it to our understanding and context, a kind of a State of the Union address. He is starting his earthly ministry and really has now begun to gather disciples. And though a multitude is listening to him, Jesus is laser-focused, speaking directly to his disciples. Or another way to put that, are the citizens of the kingdom of God. That if you are a follower of Jesus, if you have been sovereignly chosen, saved by his grace and his mercy, then he has also instituted you citizenship into his kingdom, a kingdom that is here and yet it is not yet complete, a, a kingdom that we are to be experiencing now in 2016 and yet it is a kingdom that we long for and hope to come to completion. Lord Jesus, come today should be our prayer. So right now we live in that tension, don't we? We live kind of like in two parallel universes, a, a universe that is, this is not yet my home, yet this is where I live and do ministry, and yet there is a greater, a true, and better home of, of which Jesus is preparing for us. We've been going through kind of a mini-series over the last three weeks within the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6, as Jesus has been illustrating um, what does it mean for us and citizens in God's kingdom? How should we pray? Um, how should we give to the poor? And then also today dealing with this idea of fasting. Immediately, if you talk within Christendom, if you were to talk about the significance of giving to the poor, I mean, how many of you guys believe that Christians should give to the poor? Yes. How many of you believe we should pray? Yes. How many of you believe she would fast? Hold up. Right? I mean, that's the tendency is, you know, what you talking about, Willis, when you're telling me that I should be fasting. Um, fasting, did you know, is talked about more in the Bible than baptism. Yet I bet the KBC doesn't ask for that number at the end of the year. Right? And yet it is completely significant in Kentucky Baptist Convention, for those of you who don't know what KBC means. Um, and yet, many people, even Christians, don't practice it or understand it from a biblical perspective. Jesus is going to use fasting as an illustration this morning to really point to something deeper. My aim this morning is to, is to give you a brief, actually very brief, explanation of biblical fasting and move deeper to the primary focus that I believe and would argue that Jesus is trying to get at. Um, however, I believe that fasting is extremely important, and one of the reasons why I'm going to hold off on kind of a, a major exegesis or explanation of fasting um, is because Jesus is going to preach it again in Matthew chapter 9, and so you get to hear it in, a, I think, a more distinct, really focusing, I don't think that's Jesus' ultimate purpose here, and I'll explain why in a minute. You can disagree, but you're wrong, all right? But uh, no, we can have coffee about it and discuss it later, all right? I can be wrong, but this is where I'm heading this morning. When we get to the passage um, in Matthew chapter 9, like I said, we're going to talk about it in, in great detail. 
So I'm not trying to belittle fasting at all. I just want to be faithful to the text, the primary reason of why Jesus is going to talk about fasting and why he ultimately, I think, was talking about prayer and why I think he also was talking about giving to the poor. So we're kind of a, a bookend. If you have not heard the other three sermons, past, or not pastor, but uh, maybe one day, who knows? Uh, Brian preached the kind of beginning of that, and then I preached last week, and then we kind of bookend this sandwich uh, of chapter six here with these three illustrations that Jesus gives. So, what is fasting? Jesus says here in this pastor, uh, and when, passage, and when you what? Fast. When you fast. If you notice, I tweeted out yesterday kind of a sermon title, Fast Like Jesus. I thought some people probably thought I was talking about his speed of running, but no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this idea of fasting. Literally, in the Greek, fasting means no, eat, not eat, Okay? No food, all right? Fasting is actually very common practice in many religions and non-religious people in the world. Um, if you have a friend that maybe is a Muslim or if you pay attention coming up, I think it's in the summertime, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong here, but there's the month of Ramadan for Islam, for Muslims. It is the most holy month in Islamic religious tradition. And it is centered around, though, the idea of fasting from, I believe it's, it's sun up to sundown. You're to have no food, no drink, no intimacy, none of those things. And, and Muslims are, are notorious. Even if they're non-practicing Muslims, just like non-practicing Christians, there are non-practicing Muslims. Um, but just like Christians show up at Christian, Christmas and Easter, Muslims, a lot of them who don't even practice the rest of the year, show up for Ramadan. It is their most holies of month. What's also really funny is whenever that sun goes down, a party ensues. <laughs> and they'll eat almost all night, and then so they won't eat the rest of the day. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them really jump on that. Even this week, I did a, a random Amazon.com book search for fasting. Not religious, just typed in fasting. Listen to some of the titles of real books. Fasting and Eating for Health, a medical doctor's program for conquering disease. I didn't know fasting did that, did you? Intermediate Fasting, book cover had some ripped dude on the front. Just swole, all right? The Fast Diet, lose weight, stay healthy, live longer, with the simple secret of intermediate fasting. Periodic fasting, repair your DNA, grow younger, learn to appetite, appreciate, excuse me, learn to appreciate your food. Fasting, the truth about the most powerful and ancient healing method of all. Our culture, whether religious or non-religious, um, fasting is a part of it. Um, it's actually a natural part of our lives. And that's really tough from us from American perspective, but I'll explain why here in just a moment. Yet, from a biblical perspective, fasting is not about rebooting your system or losing weight. Fasting is not about healing your disease. Fasting is, is consist or is consists of abstinence from food to express dependence on God and submission to his will. So that's very different than you telling your people that you're fasting for Jesus, but praise be to God, you lost 10 pounds in the process. 
Those things do not match up. That is not what God is getting at. It is to express dependence on God and submission to his will. Though fasting for us as believers should be primarily abstinence from food, that doesn't mean that all fast should consist of just food. There can be moments and seasons in life where maybe as a spiritual component we, we fast um, and honor God through, through not watching television, not using the internet, um, sleep even, um, or social media. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24, Paul, speaking to married couples, kind of even alludes that there can be a fast between married people in regards to intimacy. And listen to why he says that. Do not deprive one another. Again, we have some younger ears in here, so I won't explain what that means. You probably know what, all right? Except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time. So, generally speaking, husband and wife should not deprive each other. There should be consistency in the intimacy. Can I get an amen? All right, you're awake. Yet, husband and wife, for a season, for a moment, can say, we're, we're going to limit this for a limited time. But why? In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 24, he tells us, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. All right? So they're fasting from intimacy. Why? To seek God to show dependence on God, to be submissive to whose will? God's will. He, he's telling them to do this through, the, through prayer. So fasting is never, in the New Testament or from the Scripture, is never void or vacant from fervent prayer. Fasting always includes dedication and prayer to God. See, you can pray without fasting, but you cannot fast biblically without praying. The practice of uh, fasting sets aside something that is controlling us, consuming us, in order to pick up something like prayer and study. It is in order to seek God. Sometimes I'll run across people, maybe this is you, and I won't, I won't use any names or anything because I can't think of any of you that have told me this, but I'll talk to people and they'll say, well, I'm fasting from Facebook or social media. And immediately I begin to thinking, okay, that's probably a good thing. We should probably all do that. All right? However, to not be praying in the time that you would be doing Facebook is not a biblical fast. You may be stopping something, like using Facebook. But if you're not doing that, and in turn, using that time to seek God, then you're just quitting a bad habit. There is a difference there. If you are just like, I'm fasting, but you don't spend your lunchtime in prayer, then you're missing the point. All right? If you stop watching television, but you're not using that season in your life to show dependence on God and submission to His will, then I want you to know all you've done is missing your shows. All right? You're stopping a bad habit. You're stopping something that maybe is controlling you, but that is not a biblical fast. Whenever we see these things taking place, we always see in agreements with stopping this for a season, forever possibly, a, a, a joint dedication and fervent prayer life seeking God's will. 
John Piper once said this, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove that on the last day that prayerlessness was not from a lack of time. Two warnings about fasting really quickly. If you tell someone you're fasting, you've missed the point. If you tell somebody that you're fasting, you're missing the point. Two, if you're fasting from something and not spending more time in prayer, again, you have missed the point. Again, Jesus illustrates to his disciples how the Pharisees, you know, these are the, the LeBron James, the Steph Currys of Judaism. These are the all-stars of righteous living, external righteous living. They are goody goodies. You give them a to-do list, they do it well. And yet Jesus is speaking to them. He's speaking to his disciples and he's saying, these people that you think are the best, they are the all-stars. I want you to know they've got it wrong. They're hypocrites. They pretend. They have missed the point. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. For they disfigure their faces, and their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Did you know in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament as well, except for on the Day of Atonement, that's also known as Yom Kippur, is that the Bible never commands us to fast. It is always assumed that's what godly people do. That's what Jesus does. It's always assumed that when people get so hungry for God, so devoted to God, so consumed with beholding our God, that in turn they can't help but fast. Why? Because they're so consumed with God that physical food even of itself tastes like dirt. They want God more than they want these things. Jesus does not say to his disciples, if you fast, but when you fast. See, fasting is actually a normal part of humanity. I could prove it to you. And it doesn't even have to be about Jesus. Because even right now, some of us, if you're not eating since dinner last night, like me, like you're like, whoo, I can't wait to get to some lunch today. The idea of skipping a meal for some of us is a big, big deal. And yet, I can prove to you that fasting is a part of your human nature. Do you ever get so nervous that you can't eat? It is within you. It's not if you are ever going to do that. We were, Laura and I went on our date night the other night, and uh, I went and bought her some stacks, yogurt, and we were sitting there talking to some of our college friends, and uh, they were all eating ice cream as a family, but the wife was like, I just can't eat tonight. And, and we were like, why, why? We're all eating it. She's not eating it. And she was like, my brother is at the hospital with his wife, and his wife is delivering their baby right now. And I'm just so nervous thinking about it that I just can't eat. Now, was she doing that for Jesus? No. It was just a natural part of her humanity. You know, it's really tough for me to eat, eat before I come and preach on Sunday morning. It's just something I, you know, I do it every so often, but I'm just not, it doesn't really consume me like it does all other times of the day, right? There's just something about it. And yet Jesus is saying, again, not if you're going to do this, you naturally do this. And yet you also should be supernaturally doing this, not like the hypocrites though. When you 
disciples, when you fast, don't be like those guys. We've seen this term three times in chapter 6 alone. Look, when you give, what's he say? Don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, today, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. What's Jesus saying? We know, and as we've covered the last two Sundays, and again today, that a hypocrite was a Greek term. It was an actorist term. It meant you put on a mask, you did a performance, and then you went and bent, you were went and you were your real self all the rest of the time. So what is Jesus saying here? Don't put on a performance. Why do actors act? For their own glory. For applause. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, these people that you think are awesome, guess what? They're not that awesome. They're not doing this for the glory of God. They are giving to the poor. They are praying. They are fasting for their own glory. Again, fasting was a very common practice for the Pharisees. It was a very external activity, right? Even Jesus is having a conversation with a Pharisee in Luke chapter 18. And listen, I guess this dude was trying to impress Jesus. And he tells him, hey, I fast twice a week in Luke chapter 18, verse 12. It appears that fasting twice a week was actually a common practice among many of the Pharisees. They would fast on the second and fifth day of the week. History tells us, or the commentators and scholars tells us, now there's, there's kind of reasons. If you were to ask a Pharisee, why do you fast on the second and the fifth day? They came up with this real churchy answer, and they would say, well, Moses went up on Mount Sinai on the second day. He came down on the fifth day, so that's why we fast on both of those days to honor that significant event of him going up to, on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God and then coming down on the fifth day. But there's also another nugget of truth here that I think is more fluent to why the Pharisees fast on the second and fifth day. On the second and fifth day in Judaism, in most cities and towns, those were your market days. Those were the days when the, the town was hustling and bustling the most. Those were our Saturdays. Like if you try to go to Kroger or Walmart here in Bowling Green and you travel on Scottsville Road anytime Friday night through Saturday and even to Sunday afternoon, what, our town is hustling, it's bustling, there's people everywhere, you know, no bread, no milk, no butter, no cheese, all those things are just people are getting this stuff done. You can see most people on those days. And in Judaism, on the second and fifth days, those were the market things. That's when the farmers came. That's when the fruits and vegetables came. That's when the animals came. And you could go and buy those. And it is the appearance, as we've seen the Pharisees do, they take something godly and they twist it for their own glory, thus making their activity ungodly. So what begins to believe is happening is this, is that they are going to the marketplace, they're going to the flea market, they're going to Walmart, and when they show up to get their groceries and to do these things, or, or when other people are, quote-unquote, buying their groceries, what does it say? They disfigure their faces that fasting may be seen by others. They disfigure their faces. Jesus is warning his followers not to be like the Pharisees who on the busiest of days go to the market, don't buy anything to prove their piety, their glory, and to let other people know that they're fasting. 
The Pharisees, to draw attention to themselves, uh, would make themselves unrecognizable on those fast days. They neglected personal hygiene. They covered their heads. It's believed by some scholars that they would even take ashes and smear them on their face, making them extremely pale. All right? Now, this is going to age me a little bit, but in the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was this whole thing that kids got into. I was in youth ministry toward the end of this, and we called it gothic, right? And so they started showing up looking like vampires everywhere, all right? And they'd say, I'm not doing this for attention. I'm expressing myself. No, you want us to look at you. All right? If you show up in the middle of 90-something you know, degree to 100% humility wearing a trench coat with fake vampire teeth, dark lips, white hair, jet black, all right, looking like that girl from The Grudge or some scary movie, all right? Like, we, you want us to look at you. And that's the way that these people would show up to the marketplace. Drawing attention, like, man, you're looking rough today. I mean, when somebody shows up, uh, a lady who shows up to your work who, who's normally nicely dressed, hair combed, and then she shows up and hair's everywhere, no makeup. I mean, don't you ask, what's going on? Or you go to your cubicle and over, and did you say, did you see her today? Ponytail, three days in a row. You know girls having a rough time, right? Something's up at her house. Something's going on. Right? She tired. She looked tired in her eyes. Right? You're curious. You want to know. I mean, again, somebody that's normally taking care of themselves, they smell all of a sudden, they're, they're losing personal hygiene, they're not fixing their hair, they're not washing their clothes, they're wearing the same things over. You're curious, and that appears to be what the Pharisees are doing in regards to fasting. Why? So you can come up to them and you can say, man, what is going on with them? And they could tell you, I'm fasting. I'm not eating, I'm doing this for Yahweh, right? They're taking something godly, twisting it for their own ungodliness or glory, and making it ungodly. So Jesus, I love what Jesus says here in verse 17. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. You know what Jesus is saying there, simply put? Act normal. Take a shower. Comb your hair. You should not be acting any different when you are fasting so that people will see you. In verse 18, he says that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So Jesus is saying, take care of yourself. Don't look any different. This is a godly thing. It can be an honoring thing, but you should not be doing this in public. People should not know that you are doing it, but you should walk humbly before the Lord. You should take care of yourself. You shouldn't try to get people to think that you're awesome, and you shouldn't try to people to get sympathy from you. Now, this is where I could really dive into a lot of things in regards to fasting and practical, how we should start fasting and, and setting up a thing for us. And in Matthew chapter 9, we are going to do that in that section of Scripture. However, I don't believe that that is the main driver for where Jesus is concluding this kind of section of Scripture. Notice the pattern of Jesus' illustrations. Back earlier in chapter 6, what does he says? Giving in public... Then he goes on there and he says what? Rewarded by man. And then in verse 4, what does Jesus give then? He says, you should give in secret. Why? 
So Father sees in secret will reward you. Then he continues on and uh, later on he says, Praying in public, you will be rewarded by man. What is Jesus' command? Pray to your Father in secret. And the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Then he goes on, he gives another illustration. Fasting in public, you will be rewarded by man. Verse 18, so fast that you may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in what? In secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, I would argue that Jesus could have used several other spiritual and, and good practices for us as disciples. What if Jesus was to say this? When you are studying the scripture, when you are attending a worship gathering, he could have used a, a, a montage of, of different examples here. He chose those three. I think there's credible examples of why those were common practices, but, but he could have thrown in here, brothers and sisters, several different examples of, of the practices. We call these spiritual disciplines of believers, but he chose these three. Notice Jesus here in verse 6, chapter, or excuse me, chapter 6, verse 1. This is the thesis of those three illustrations. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That is the, the thesis of these illustrations. I want you to teach you, Pastor Justin wants to teach you, our community leaders, we want to teach you how, how to be good Bible readers. Whenever Jesus states a statement like that, beware, but also then begins to repeat himself, or if you begin to see repeating words inside of the scripture, that's a main point. That's what he is getting at. So he sets it up. He says, man, this is my thesis for where I'm going in these three illustrations of, of giving to the poor, of prayer, and of fasting, but that, that beware of practicing this righteousness before other people. Be careful. Do not be hypocrites. Do not put on a performance. Notice here as well is that the only place I can find within the Sermon on the Mount, maybe I'm wrong, but is this idea of warning. What's he say? Circle it. Be where Jesus is giving a warning here he is taking this extremely serious I was looking at some other guys and how they preach through the, these different sections and you know we take what an hour kind of for each one of them and I've known of guys and fellow brothers fellow pastors brother pastors who have preached Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday on each one of these Jesus gives three examples. Like, he means it. This is a very serious thing that Jesus is talking about, this idea of hypocrisy, this idea of people within the community that we are going to lift up, edify, celebrate these people who seemingly are doing all of these external things. And Jesus says, be careful about practicing them only in public. Because what does he say? You will not receive a reward from the Father. You're going to receive a reward from man, but you will not receive a reward from God. 
In Eugene Peterson's, the message, not the remix, but the message translation, it's a paraphrase. I would not encourage you to deeply study that as your study Bible, but it does have a good and healthy place for us to understand this. I love his translation when he says this. Be especially careful. This is his translation of 6.1. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be applauding. You may be a good actor. You may receive applause, but it will not be from God. You know, there are lots of truths in chapter 6. Lots of sermons, lots of application. However, Jesus is warning and is warning his disciples against a mighty stronghold in our lives. And I want you to understand this, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that this has been the stronghold in our lives since about Genesis chapter 3. And that is this, even if we won't admit it here this morning, is that we want to be worshipped as God. It has multiple fruits a way that is expressed in every one of us. But at the core root of it is that you and I, like Satan, as even Scripture would say, that we were children of wrath, that even if we do not follow Jesus, that God is not our Father, and our Father is Satan. What is Satan, what is Lucifer's deal, is the brother wants to be God. And when we sinned like Satan did, we in our deep rootedness of all of our sin, we will find at the core of it is that you and I want to be God. We want to be creator. We want to be sovereign. We want to have authority. We want to have our own kingdom. We want to dictate what is good. We know better than God knows. We can determine things better than God can. John Calvin once stated this, that our hearts are idol factories. What is he saying? Daily, we are pumping out these different idols in our lives. We live in a culture that is filled with idols, don't we? There are the fruit of the idols, but again, it is the secret corridors of our hearts that are these factories that pump them out. You know, sometimes I want to be funny because I want other people to think I'm funny. And I think I am. I can't believe it when I find people that don't think I am. All right? I love people who naturally laugh at my jokes. All right? I was crazy in college. I mean, some things I'm just really embarrassed about that I did, but those things really attracted my wife. Now, I don't know what that says about me or about her taste. But the day we were on our date night, and we were like in the middle of like a store, and I'm just like dancing on my wife, probably inappropriately, in this store. And she's like, quit it, which means do it more, right? (laughs) Quit it. I'm like, don't be complaining. This is what won you over, girl. And I want, I want to do things. I want to say things, even if they're inappropriate sometimes, so that people will think I'm funny. They will applaud me for that. They will quote me in my humor. But God is not laughing. God is not impressed. I don't know about you, but I want to be seen as beautiful by other people. 
even if you have no chance with me, ladies <laughs> or dudes. You don't, ha you don't have a shot with me, but I want you to think you do. I want you to think, man, that dude is handsome. Confessionally, God has given me the gift of baldness. Like many brothers, founders in the Christian faith, probably even Paul, it's believed that he was bald. All right? But I want you to know, when I went through the transition from having hair to baldness, that was rough on a brother. Why? Because we, we live in a culture that is all about image. I grew up, I, my mom is one of 12 kids. I have six uncles just on my mama's side. They are all look like me. And as a kid, I made fun of them, wrote songs about their baldness. Those are some ugly dudes. And I look in the mirror every day and I'm like, I look just like the graves. I look just like my uncles. And I'm like, this is terrible. This is awful. Why? Because it's, it's destroying my image. This is what I want to put off. I want people to think I'm funny. I want people to think that I'm, I'm good looking. I want people to think that I'm generous. I want people to think that I'm a good preacher. I want people to think that I'm a good pastor. And we live in this tension of wanting these things. Why? Because these are all idols inside of our lives. Brothers and sisters, beloved, we, we may not have wooden or metal statues in our homes and offices to God like Artemis like they did in Ephesus in the book of Acts. But for many of us, the praises of others are like incense to the altar of self. You may not have a Buddha that you rub next to your door whenever you walk into it. You may not have a, an icon that you bow down and worship to. You may not roll out a rug and, and turn toward a certain city in order to worship. You, you know, we think those people are crazy, and yet the praises and the applause of humanity and the reward that we get is intoxicating for us as they speak into our lives or speak negatively into our lives. It is, it is an incense altar that just fills the space in the, of our hearts and our minds. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, it says, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. Into their hearts. Tim Keller says this, Yet while traditional idol worship still occurs in many places in the world, Internal idol worship within the heart is universal. An idol is whatever you look and say in a heart of hearts. If I have that, I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. What many people call psychological problems are simple issues of adultery. Perfectionism. Anybody guilty? Workaholism. There we go. Chronic indecisiveness and the need to control others all stem from making good things into idols that then drive us into the ground as, they, as it, we try to appease them. Idols dominate our lives. 
brothers and sisters, Jesus is warning us in these illustrations that his followers are to fight against the idol of being worshipped by others. To make God-honoring practices such as giving, prayer, and fasting and turn them not into opportunities to worship God and to celebrate God together, but opportunities to worship self. Jesus is serious. He is going to spend much of the rest of his ministry unpacking these very thoughts. We're going to cover this idea over and over and over again in the book of Matthew. Notice, who is Jesus speaking to? Somebody tell me. Believers. We call that the church. Who's gotten it wrong? The church. Who's Jesus warning? The church. Who is he warning them not to be like? The Jews aren't the church, okay? But for sake of illustration, I mean, he's telling the people that are the, he's given the law to the Jews. They've been following him, ebbs and flows, for thousands of years. And he comes to these people, and he's not sitting next to the woman on the well and saying necessarily that, hey, hey, you, he's looking at the church people in this moment who are convinced they are the ones that are okay. And, he, and he's saying to them, here's the deal, you are performing. Don't be like these performers. This is going to be your natural tendency is for every one of us to fall back into legalism, to lose grace, to be about moralism, and to performing for brothers and sisters and people inside of this room. To perform for your husband, to perform for your wife, to perform for your children. But brothers and sisters, you will not stand before any of us on the day of judgment. You will stand before God Almighty. He will look upon you and he will be able to determine, man, what are you doing here? That's why it's important for us to give to the poor. It's important for us to pray. Yes, it's important. Fasting is important. But believe Jesus in this understanding that this could be a wide variety, we could fill in the blank here. Again, who are you singing to when we sing? Brothers and sisters, we can have right theology and yet it be an idol in our lives. It can, it can be to, to want to prove somebody wrong. It can even be to, to want to prove how intellectual we are. Why do you serve in Mission Kids? Why do you help set up? Why do you tear down? Why do you make copies? Why do you set up the coffee in the back? Why do you help people move? Why do we help the poor? Again, from Tim Keller, the default mode of the human heart is to seek to control God and others through our moral performance. Because we have lived virtuous lives, we, we feel that God and the people that we meet owe us respect and support. Though we may give lip service to Jesus as our example and inspiration, we are still looking to ourselves and to our own moral striving for salvation. This is probably my last illustration in Ava playing volleyball today. After volleyball season ended, Ava and I had to have a come to Jesus or come to daddy meeting. 
about her volleyball. I enjoy coaching. I enjoy the girls on my team. Um, Ava's played like three or four seasons now, but we had a heart-to-heart conversation of why does she really want to be on a volleyball team? Because we can't get her to practice outside of it. it. It's not really her passion. And in through tears, Ava confessed to me that she does not really love the game. What she loves is for people to come watch her play the game. And you can tell a difference. It's not her passion. But if you show up to watch her, the entire time she's out there on the court, she's looking. She's looking at her family. What are they watching? As soon as she does something right or wrong, what does she do? She looks at them to see how they're going to respond to her. Ava's a hypocrite. Ava's putting on her performance. She wants to be worshipped. She wants that praise. She needs that encouragement. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't encourage people. Please not. And that's, that's what I'm saying. We need to encourage our kids and those sorts of things. But, but the idea here is this, is that we get so wrapped up in living in a culture that is, is all about that. Our days are controlled by how we feel that other people think about us. We love that pat on the back. We live in a society that is based around self-promotion. I mean, if you take enough weird selfies, they'll put you on a television show. Which only fuels what? Self-absorption. I want to be God. When we do things to be seen by others, Scripture is cleared. You will receive your reward. But your reward is not from God. My reward is not from God. It is from who? Man. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, Jesus states over and over again, man, if you give to the poor in public for it to be seen so that they will worship you, you will get that reward. If you pray in public to be seen, you will get a reward. If you fast in public, you will get a reward. You will get what you're asking. People will applaud you. Some of us in pastoral ministry, we joke about this because we love to go to conferences. Conferences are great, but every dude that seems to stand up there seemingly from the stage has it together. Their churches are thousands of people. You know, they, they've got missional communities everywhere. They've got book deals, all these sorts of things. And, and Justin and I were talking about this last conference that we went to, which was phenomenal. But it's like, I want a dude to get up there and go, man, my church is terrible. We can't find a worship leader, right? Um, I, want to, I want some guy to get up and go, man, I love church planting. I love pastoring, but it's the same 30 people, and it's been those 30 people for 30 years. Be encouraged, brother. That's the conference I want to go to. Why? It's real. Most of us aren't going to have those big buildings. Most of us aren't going to have those big numbers. Most of those, if, if writing a book, See Christian Run, can get published, I'm that kind of book author. All right? And, and yet, that is who we elevate, don't we? We do it naturally. You go to the bookstore, and if you, uh, this is my running joke, you've heard me say this before. You go to the Christian bookstore, and brother and sister's faces on the front, don't buy that book. 
It's about them. All right? Do not buy that book. We elevate. We do it. It's not even all these people's fault. But we elevate Christian celebrity. We read an article that Mark Phillips sent some of us in the church a few weeks ago, and they were talking about, we allow pastors who have secret, terrible, and this is paraphrased, but secret in their marriages are terrible, and we pay them to write marriage books. We, they have terrible kids who are disobedient, not following Jesus, and we let them write a parenting book because of their name, not because of what Jesus is doing in their home. And he's like, we got to stop that. We got to quit edifying people to the point. I'm not saying disrespect people, because we should respect people, and we should respect position. But we cannot edify them to the place of God, and ultimately we can't edify ourselves to the only throne that God can sit on. So important for us why is seeking the praise of men so dangerous? I get kind of cold chills when I think about this passage because what does Jesus say? You will get it. That is scary. Does anybody understand the tension of what Jesus is saying? If you sin in this way, you will be rewarded. They will honor you. I, I believe that there's a hint of the judgment of God in this statement. Why? Because he allows us to be successful, even if it's for our own glory. He, he, he turns us over to the desires of our flesh. And we live in America in a westernized church and culture where how can it be wrong if it's successful? But it can be. This is the reward that the hypocrites desire. And it's, it, it, it's not, or, or they have a deep desire, just as we do, to be admired for our discipline and zeal, we want these things. Many of us in this room will never become addicted to meth. And yet many of us are consumed and strung out on the praises of people. And, and not only do we take it, but some of us are good at cooking it. We have to watch in our marriage about doing something moral or right in order to manipulate the situation to get them to ultimately do what you want them to do. That's, that's hypocritical. It's a performance. It's, you're trying to twist this. Hey, if I, if I can smooth talk them into saying, hey, uh, if you do this, I'll do that. It's manipulation. It's theatrical. You will get what you want. God is calling us to something greater. He's telling us to, to crave him, to lust after him. Have you ever lusted for something? Dude, you're consumed by it. It controls your thoughts. You are unproductive until you get it. You must 
have it. You want it. You will do anything to get it. And God is saying, man, if you want applause, if you want popularity, if you want relevance, if you want to be praised by people, guess what? I'm going to turn you over that sin and you are going to receive that reward, but you will not receive a reward from me. You must crave lust, hunger, do anything you can do to get me. We want to be made much of. We want to be worshipped. We want people to notice, notice us. And yet, Jesus is going to say later in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, whoever exhausts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. As one author put it, we love to cover our idol worship of self with religious camouflage. Man, not only do we desire to see people or desire for people to praise us for our accomplishments, but we also want people to feel sorry for our pain. You know, confessionally, when we first found out about cash, after we got out off the initial, like, and I have to be very careful of this in certain circles and situations, is I want people to feel sorry for Laura and I. Because you, you have no clue what it's like to live this life with a kid with special needs. Guess what? I have no clue what it's like for you to live in the way that you live. And it can be easy to, to be drawn into not only wanting people to celebrate accomplishments, but also you want people to feel sorry for you. You want people to have pity on you. It's the same rootedness of sin. One is the worship of a high five. The other is a worship of you, of, of, of man, Oh, oh you, you get me. You, you understand me. You feel sorry for me. You have pity on me, which can be just as addictive. That's why it's important for us, brothers and sisters, to take off the mask and to be extremely honest with our struggles with one another. We love to be seen by people in public, but how many of us would want to be seen in private? I want you to imagine just for a moment that over the course of the last seven days, since last Sunday, that we could kind of put a big brother on all of you, on all of us. Every action and every thought is then broadcast to every other person in this room. Where you could get on your cell phone and I could watch Kalen, what he's doing. What he's thinking. What if... In every conversation, a TV screen was attached to our monitor, was attached to our forehead. And every conversation that you're having, though you may be speaking these words, up on the monitor, it's really playing what you're thinking. Would you want us to see it? Could we play it on a Sunday morning as a video? A hypocrite is a person who's trying to look different on the outside than you are on the inside. The motivation for a hypocrite to give to the poor, to pray, to fast, is to be noticed by people, to come to Mission Church on a Sunday morning, to come to an MC, uh, to serve in a variety of ways. Um, when its original purpose was, was for intimacy with God. God should be our reward. See, some of you have become very bored with Christendom. You've become very bored with the church. 
You've all but relationally, or maybe not relationally, but emotionally devoid yourself from Jesus, but also from the church. See, the thing is, is that God should be enough. God does know what is playing on that monitor. God does know what is playing in that screen. Not only what we can visibly see, but also what is playing in the screens of our minds. God is there. God, though, should be our reward. We should be happy and satisfied in the things of God. And when we don't feel that way, begin to pray and ask God, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. Help me in my disobedience. May I confess this to brothers and sisters in Christ, not to be honored and worshiped by them, but in order that we may walk together in a newness. Jesus tells us in chapter 5 that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And what is he saying there? The righteousness that can only take place within the heart. See, ladies and gentlemen, that is what we should be getting at here because that is what Jesus is getting at. You can do religious activities and be void in your heart of the things in the heartbeat for God. And yet a person who is deeply, deeply craving, longing, hungering, wanting to know and to be intimacy and have intimacy with God, guess what? It will naturally produce fruit. But it gets very confusing in Christendom. Christians should not do things because they are the right thing to do. We should do them because it honors God in what we're doing. But we like to do them just because they're moral. They seem right. And yet, what does he say? We give in secret, we get God. We pray in secret, we get God. We fast in secret, we get God. Why? Because there are no secret places with God. So can you sit down and, and look at the things on that computer with Jesus there? Because Jesus is there. Can you watch that movie with Jesus was physically in the room? Well, guess what? Jesus is physically in the room. Can you listen to that music with Jesus being in the room? And the reality is Jesus is in that room. Can you think those thoughts in your mind if Jesus was there? Well, guess what? Jesus is there. There are no secret places with God. And yet that is where he rewards us because he does not want us to be performances in front of public people. But he wants us to be passionate for his glory in those quiet and still moments. Brothers and sisters of Mission Church, until God is everything in the life of the believers of Mission Church, he will never be everything in our city. Everything. Everything. Man, I want to live such a life, and, and I thank God that my, my life will not be portrayed before you before the big screen. But I want to live a life in such a way that if it was, you could say God is glorious. God is made much of in that man's life. He has integrity. He has honor. He has character. Both his private and his very public position, they match up. They, they line up with one another. I asked a lady in our church this last week, I said, if your husband was the pastor of this church, would you still submit to him as your pastor? And she said, yes. That's powerful. That means something. That means this man's private life and his public life, they line up. 
That doesn't mean that he's not without sin. It's meaning he's quickly to confess. He's quick to repent. She sees that. I know the brother. He's not perfect. But in, and yet, God has called them to this life. He has called us to this life. We've seen this song that says, Christ is enough for me. It starts out, Christ is my reward. He's worth living for. He's worth dying for. And it says, Christ is enough for me. We need to be careful, brothers and sisters, that when we sing such powerful songs as those, that we are not singing lies. Because is he? Is he enough? So Jesus unveils this truth in this kind of sandwich of illustrations here. Is giving to the poor important? Yes, we're going to talk more about that, especially in Matthew chapter 25 and some other areas. Is prayer important? Yes, in about, I don't know, three months we hit prayer again. Is fasting important? Yes, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to talk about fasting in great, great detail. But the, what Jesus is getting at here is not specifically about those three things as much as it is the warning, the beware of a life. No matter what is the blank, whatever you fill in the blank of, of doing blank for the applause of people. And understanding you will be rewarded for that. People will think you're funny. They'll think you're beautiful. They'll think you're awesome. They'll think you're a super Christian. And yet, you will not be rewarded by God. Repent. Turn to Jesus. And brothers and sisters, let me give you this hope. You know why we can do that? Because everything Jesus did in public was God-honoring. Everything he did in public, every healing, every prayer, him dying upon the cross, everything he did in his public ministry was only a fruit of his private ministry. Everything that God is declaring of you and I to do in secret, guess what, brothers and sisters? Jesus did it perfectly in secret. He did it in secret. And because he did it in secret, and because God imputes Jesus' secret life, have you ever thought about that? Everything, the Bible tells us in the Gospel of John, I think, that Jesus did a lot more than they could put into the New Testament. I wish we had all that. But everything Jesus did in secret that was right and good, which was everything, God, through Jesus, has imputed that to you and I. And so we can live very public lives proclaiming the person and work of Jesus, giving glory and honor to the person and work of Jesus, while simultaneously live in secret to God's glory. Because everything, everything, everybody say everything. Everything God demanded of you, he gave you in Jesus.